All right. So I need you to indulge me for a second. Grab the ruler that's under your seat. If you don't have one, we have plenty up front because we've got no extra holy people today who wanted to brave the front row. Uh, we can pass it down. So make sure you got a ruler. And I'm going to have you do, okay, so here's the thing. I want you to do something um, only so we can undo it later, all right? So you just have to kind of, we're on a journey to this morning. You might not enjoy it. You might not like it, but it's a good thing, and uh, we are headed somewhere. So here's the first thing I want you to do. Grab a pen. You might have to borrow one, uh, but hopefully you have a pen near you. And I want you to treat this ruler and, and begin to think of it as the way in which we measure ourselves, the way in which we rank ourselves uh, in society. So, for example, here's the first thing I want you to do. you got a, a rank from 1 to 12. It's 12 inches, nice, nice foot ruler. And uh, on a ranking of 1 to 12, 1 being first place, the best, 12 being the worst, Where um, think about your career. If you, if you don't have a career, uh, you can pick something else. But for those who have a career, think about your career, where you work. And I want you to place yourself, think about the hierarchy in your, in your workplace. Um, or your school, um, your hierarchy. So for me, I'm a pastor. Above me, I have a district superintendent. Above the district superintendent, I have a bishop. And then that's about as far as it goes. God's after that. Right? So that's the, the hierarchy that I live in. Um, but think about your hierarchy. What, and so think about who might be near the top in, in, in your organization, who might be near the bottom, and then place yourself in a scale of 1 to 12. Where are you? Um, are you closer to the top of your, your organizational hierarchy or your school? You know, if you're in school right now, you probably have a teacher and they have a principal, and maybe they have a superintendent, and then they've got a board. You know, you can kind of think through this. But think about it and circle where you would. Where do you fit in the hierarchy of your, your work or your school? One being... You're the, you're the top person in charge, and, two, and 12 being you're, you're, um, you're the secretary of the uh, custodian. You know, that's what, you know, really. I don't know if they have. That's fine. All right, uh, so do that. Circle that. Now, this one's going to make you a little bit more uncomfortable, but that's okay. Now, I want you to consider your spiritual life. Where do you place yourself in if you were to rank yourself as a disciple? So think of the 12 disciples. Are you a little bit more like Peter, you know, James and John? That's who we're spending time with. Peter, James, and John, they're like right that, real close to Jesus. Or, or are you, do you identify a little bit more with Judas? And there's no wrong answer here. We're across the spectrum. Um, maybe Thomas, doubting Thomas, somewhere lower half. I don't know. It depends on your theology, what's doubts allowed or not. Um, but where do you put yourself? Just be honest. Um, I'm asking you to do this because we do this already. So you might not like it, but we, let's get it out. Let's get it out on here. And, and you can use a circle or you can use a square if you want to keep them track. Uh, or a triangle, you can mix it up. So do that. All right, now I want you to do another, answer another question. How important is it that, that you are looked up to or admired by your peers? One being very important and 12 being not important at all. How important is it for you to be looked up to or admired by your peers? Whatever those peers are. Classmates, people in a similar profession. How important is it? One being very important, 12 being it's not. Take a second to do that. Now I want you to think about it from one more angle. Take a second and think of what are some of the awards or recognition you've received or moments that you're really proud of? Can you think of a couple? Things you're like, you know what, this, is, this was, I was killing it that day. Can you think of a moment, an accomplishment that you would say, you know what, that was a good moment for me. That was a, that was a highlight 
I got recognized, I accomplished something that I didn't think I could accomplish. You can think about that for a second. You can kind of just even, you don't have to write it down, maybe you can if you want, but kind of put that you know, towards the one, you know, just associate it to, the, to, to one side. Once you've got one of those, I want you to think about the opposite. What is a moment or a time in your life where maybe you weren't so successful? A moment where you're like, you know what, that was not my brightest moment. That's, that is a failure that I'd rather not be thinking about right now. Thanks a lot, Joe. You know, I really, that's the one that if I comes to me at the middle of the night, I'm up the rest of the night. I, why am I all of a sudden thinking about that thing I did in junior high? I can't believe that came to, think about that for a second. Allow that to sit on the, you know, either real or metaphorically, allow that to sit on the other side of the ruler. I want you to hold on to this ruler. I want it to, for you, to represent the ways in which we rank, compare, and measure ourselves, okay? That's what this ruler is, it's, it's, in, it's holding on to all of that for us. That's where we put it all there. Anything else that you use to compare or rank yourself, let it just sit with that ruler and you can, you can put it aside for a second. We'll get back to it in a little bit. It's widely known that as humans, we tend to compare ourselves. Um, and uh, some suggest it's because we're constantly trying to figure out how we measure up. You know, comparing ourselves is a way to figure out where we rank in the world. And knowing where we rank against others helps us uh, define who we are. It's one of the ways that we engage in this sort of self-examination. It's one of the ways we, we come to terms with ourselves. Now, I'm not an expert in this, but the little I, I've read on the matter, I found that there are generally two ways to compare yourself to others. One way is to compare yourself to people who you believe are below you or worse off than you, what we call a downward comparison. Um, and the other is to compare yourself to people who believe that you believe are better off than you or who are better than you. And that's an upward comparison. For example, if I told you to rank yourself on a socioeconomic level, you know, where you fall in regards to how much money you make and the culture you live in because of the amount of money you live. Um, if I told you to do that, but I told you to think primarily of the people in the world who only live on $2 a day, you'd probably rank yourself pretty high, right? Compared to people who make $2 a day, you're, we're all going to be pretty high on the scale. But if I told you to compare yourself to the people who make millions of dollars every day, you, most of us, I would imagine, would probably rank ourselves a little bit lower. Now, here's what they found. Um, studies suggest, and we know this is true just from personal experience, that when you compare yourself to people below you, you feel better about your life. In fact, we see this in ministry all the time you've said this, I've said this, many have said this, you know, people will say, I love to serve the poor because I, it reminds me of how good I have it. And that's a downward comparison, isn't it? I feel better about my life because I'm comparing it to people who are clearly worse off. Now, studies also suggest that when you compare yourself to people who you view as above you, you feel worse about your life. And we do this all the time, don't we? That's why I'm not on social media during Lent, you know. Um, and hopefully some of you. Here's the thing. There has to be a better way. And today, I want to spend some time with Jesus and what he teaches his disciples, I believe, a much better way. So hold on to that. We're currently in a series where we're looking at Jesus' uh, disciples, and we're spending time with disciple one, two, and three at the top. Uh, last week, we looked at Peter and tried to give an overarching picture of Peter's time with Jesus. And this week, we're looking at James and John. 
three of his closest disciples. We know they're his closest disciples because four different times he pulls them apart and he spends time with them, um, not to mention they get a little bit more screen time. Next week, we're going to spend some time looking at those one of those four passages where Peter, James, and John are pulled aside by Jesus and get to experience something uh, rather unique. Um, now, we often talk about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. And so we're looking at this conversation. We're looking at these relationship that Jesus has with his closest disciples through that lens. What should it look like for me to be friends with Jesus? Because my problem with this idea of having a personal relationship with Jesus, it, it, no one really, I don't really know what people mean by that. But we know what it looked like to have a personal relationship with the historic Jesus according to the Gospels. So let's look at that. And here's what we found with Peter. We found that it often means missing the point, making mistakes, being forgiven, stumbling along. And today, we're going to continue to see that trend. So uh, James and John, they're recruited the same time as Peter. We talked about that last week. But they don't get nearly as much time, uh, screen time as Peter. But there are a couple things we know about them. First, they were fishermen. They were peers of Peter. They were uh, fishing when Peter was fishing. Um, and uh, they're recruited the same time that Peter's recruited. Second... They had a nickname together. They're almost always mentioned together, James and John, and their nicknames were the Sons of Thunder, which tells us a lot about, I mean, here's two brothers. They work the same job. They follow the same rabbi. Uh, they follow, uh, they never appear separated, not till the very end, and, and, and they get this nickname, Sons of Thunder. So in other words, if the disciples were the Avengers, just the comparison you were hoping for this morning, Peter's what, like Captain America, Iron Man, any other Marvel fans in the room? No? I'm here alone. The Sons of Thunder, Thor. Don't believe me? Look at the scripture passage. They're on their way to Jerusalem. They're crossing through Samaria. Samaria doesn't like Jews, especially Jerusalem Jews. They're fine with Galilean Jews, but they don't like Jerusalem Jews. They're on their way to Jerusalem. They're passing through Samaria. The Samarians are like, get out of our land. And this is what James and John do about it. James and John, but the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? And Jesus turned, and rightly so, rebuked them. Here's one of James and John's few lines, you know, like of all the things you could say, and this gets recorded. Uh, the future of the church, a church that's built on loving your enemies, and this is who it's going to be left with. It's a miracle it got off the ground. And I mean that. It really, really was a miracle. There's no better example of this than one of the stories of James and John. It's one of the few stories they're given the center stage for, and it could be a, found in a couple different Gospels, but we're going to look at it as it appears in the Gospel of Mark. So before we get into the story, we do need a little backstory. So if you have your Bibles or your smartphones, you want to follow along, we're going to be in Mark chapter 9. We're going to be in Mark chapter 10 with James and John. We're going to start in 9, uh, looking at verses 33 to 37. It will be on the screen as well. Uh, here's what it happens. Jesus is traveling with his 12 disciples, and, uh, and, and, and they are just classic disciples, verse 33, it says this. They came to Capernaum where he was in the house. Uh, he asked them, when he was in the house, Jesus, he asked them, what are you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they argued about who was the greatest. Jesus and the disciples had been walking and, and, you know, Jesus heard kind of their conversation. Of course, they walked everywhere. And when they get to this private place and they, they pull into this room, he gets the 12 disciples, he pulls them aside, and he says, hey, what, what were you guys arguing about? Probably knowing 
what it is they were arguing about. They were comparing each other. And they wanted to know how they ranked. They wanted to know how they measured up compared to each other. Who was the greatest and who was the least? And surely the 12 disciples all fell somewhere along the ruler. The ruler that we use to measure each other. And they wanted to know who was number one and who was number 12. Here's what Jesus does about it. Verse 35, sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He's like, come, come, guys, you're killing me here. Come, let's sit down. Let me tell you how this actually works. Let's talk. If you want to be number one, you have to live like number 12. He goes on. He took a little child whom he'd placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Jesus wants to make his point clear. I am Jesus, son of the living God, but I am no better than a child. This might sound strange. Uh, We live in a culture that thinks uh, fairly highly of children. We count children as humans uh, with certain rights um, and worth. Uh, The ancient world didn't. The ancient Roman world, children were almost useless, worthless. They weren't considered valuable humans until they reached uh, uh, teenage uh, years and became an adult. In fact, if a Roman Roman couple couldn't have kids and they wanted to adopt, it was more common for them to actually adopt an adult person than a child because children were just, they weren't even valuable enough to bring into your family. They were invisible and they were given over to the women to care for, which were just a little bit above children. They were the lowest rung of society. And with that in mind, Jesus says to them, you want to know how I rank as your leader. If you welcome me, you welcome this child. And if you welcome this child, you welcome me. Jesus says, I, Jesus, am equal to a child who doesn't even register on the rules that we use to measure ourselves. This kind of thing, Jesus says, every time they argue about who's the greatest. And the crazy thing is, they argue about it all the time. The disciples are so human. Because we do this as well. In fact, here's the places where um, some of the passages where it happens, where they argue about who's the greatest. You can look it up. Now, a couple of these are simply copies of, uh, of some of the others in that they are the same stories told by a different gospel writer. Yet, when you compare them to each other, um, there seems to be about three or four times different occasions, different situations where the disciples specifically argued about who Jesus considered the greatest. Three or four different times. It's quite a few times to try to figure out who's the greatest, who's the best, who was Jesus' favorite. And when you start to compare these different circumstances together, there's this theme that stands out. In all of these circumstances, Jesus tells his disciples that if they want to be great, if they want to rise to the top in the ranks as his disciple, they have to be willing to head down the ranks of society. Every time, this is what he says. They don't have ears to hear it. And uh, because in the very next chapter, uh, Mark chapter 10, look what James and John do. Now remember, they were just scolded. The disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. And Jesus says, this isn't how it works. And the next chapter, here's what happens. Verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said, Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. I have a three-year-old. This is what three-year-olds say. This is the difference between receiving the kingdom of God like a child and being childish. And there is a difference. They say, we're not going to tell you what we're asking for. Just promise to give it to us. 
Here's what Jesus says. He says, uh, what do you want from me? What do you want me to do for you, he asked. And they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. They're like, hey, Jesus, you know, we heard, you know, what you said about the whole arguing who's the greatest thing, but, like, that aside, it's us, right? Like, I know we're not supposed to argue about it, but, like, we're, we're one and two. You can pick which one's one and two. James or John will go either way. Like, we're flexible, but we're one or two. We can just secure those spots now, right? Here's what Jesus says. He says, you don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drank or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? They wanted the glory of Jesus, but what they didn't understand is that the glory of Jesus would be on the other side of a cross. So he uses this metaphor. He says, this cup I drank is a cup of suffering. This baptism, I'm going to be baptized. This is a baptism of suffering. I'm going to be beaten, shamed. I'm going to be tossed aside. I'm going to be hung on a cross. I'm going to die. And you don't want to do that. Well, they say, um, yeah, we can. They're so bold, you know, because they don't get it. So Jesus replies. He says, you know what? You will drink the cup I drank and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit on my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Jesus says, you know what? If you want to be my closest disciple, which means you're going to walk alongside me, that journey is going to lead to Calvary. To be Jesus' closest disciple, to have a personal relationship with Jesus is going to require an immense amount of sacrifice. It'll cost you. And you're not, gonna, you're not ready for that, James and John. You don't get it. And they said, no, we can do it. And he says, you know what? Actually, there will come a day where you will get it, and you will give your entire life for me. We learn about this in the book of Acts. After Jesus dies and rises again, um, there's this little brief note in Acts, 12, uh, Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to prosecute them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. As far as, I'm, as, far as I know, this is the first time James and John aren't listed together as James and John, but rather James, brother John, who would die at the sword because of his faith. He'd be killed. Jesus says, you know what? Actually, there's going to come a time after the resurrection when it clicks and you get it and you will give your life to this. But you're not there. And I know you're not there because you're still asking for spot one and spot two, and that's not the point. Well, it wasn't their time yet. It wasn't their time to give up their life. And, and James and John are still young and immature in their faith. And uh, the rest of the disciples find out what they did, especially after Jesus had just scolded them. And so here's what happens. Verse 42, Jesus called them together. They, they argue. It says, when the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Um, and so Jesus says this in verse 42, Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you've grown up in the church or even the wider culture uh, influenced by Christianity, then you probably don't understand why the things that Jesus says is so radical. We've grown to respect the people who serve. And we often love and we cherish them. We, uh, in fact, we, we respect volunteers so much we throw them parties 
and we give thanks, and, and when people put in lots of volunteer hours, the culture at the large celebrates the work that they've done. And the fact that we love volunteers and servants and the fact that we uh, love children and respect them as humans is just a, really just a testament to the ways in which Jesus' teachings have still, are still impacting our culture and influence us today. Because the world Jesus spoke these words into felt very differently. In the Roman world, there were very clear social classes. The Romans believed in these classes so much so that you were, it was, God had put you there for a purpose. You were a slave, you were a woman, you were a child, you were, a, wherever you fit in the, it was because God wanted you there. The gods wanted you there and you had to fulfill your role and stay in your place. You can see this most uh, clearly um, by uh, the way in which they organized around the Colosseum. Here's a picture. Uh, the Colosseum was broken into these rules. You had at the front the senators and various uh, other intermediate categories all the way to the very nosebleed section was reserved for women and slaves. That's where they got to hang out. Children weren't allowed, of course. That's how, you know, sporting events were organized back then. It's not how we do it anymore. There's no classes at play. You had to stay in your lane. In fact, uh, in AD 5, the Romans passed a law that reserved the first 14 rows of any theater to the social elite. So you in the front, you're basically royalty. And all of you are like, this is why I don't sit in the front. You're calling me out. The Romans had a very clear and legal way to measure the value of someone. They had it. They had it all figured out. If you were the elite... You had great privilege all the way down to the common person. In fact, the gods were included in this uh, scale. The gods would be at the very top of the scale, and then the, the, you know, the Caesars would be just a little bit below them. In fact, that's why it wasn't uncommon for Caesars to view themselves as kind of god-like. And they were so deeply separated from the bottom of the yardstick, from all the way down here to where you know, the, the, the poor and the women and the slaves were. So the gods were up here, and the rich and the powerful, the commoner, all the way down. Except for children. Children weren't even measured. They weren't even on the scale at all. Children didn't make the comparison. They weren't considered to be people even worth considering, and they didn't get measured. And yet it's for Jesus. If you welcome a child, he says, you're welcoming me. I'm not even on the, I'm not even. If you welcome someone who doesn't even register on the scale of the world's measuring stick, then you've welcomed me because I am with them. In other words, if you want to know God, don't head up towards the powerful and elite. Head down toward those who are considered the least. In fact, Jesus seems to think that, that heading down uh, towards the bottom is actually the way in which we head up. And in many ways, flipping the ruler on its head. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. Because Jesus goes on and, and he asks a question. And it becomes the climax of this conversation. It happens much later. He asks them a question that forces them to really think about what he's saying. It's a question um, around one of the arguments where they're having who's the greatest. It, it's during Jesus' Last Supper. It's true. Jesus, he's, he's instituting the sacrament of communion. He's going to step down and wash his disciples' feet, a story we referenced last week. And it's in that context that they are yet again trying to figure out who's the greatest. At that point, they're also trying to figure out who's going to be the worst and betray him. And because of Jesus, he tells them the same thing he tells them over and over again. And this time he adds a question. And here's his question. For who is greater, the one who's at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table, but I am among you as one who serves?
Jesus gives them a logical conundrum, and, and a brilliant one at that. One you can't leave behind. One Peter and James and John and all the disciples had to reckon with. And here's how it worked. Clearly, according to the world, at that time, the one who sits at the table is higher than the one who serves. That was true back then, and it's still true today. That's how the world works. Yet Jesus comes as one who serves, meaning this question forces them to answer in one of two ways. So either one, Jesus isn't very great, because he came as one who serves. Even as one who washes feet, the lowest of the servant roles. So one, either he isn't very great, or two, the way we determine greatness is wrong. Jesus is down here, he's living and associating with the world's lowest classes, so either he's not great or the way we determine greatness is wrong. Jesus claimed to be God, and as such, according to the world, he belonged near the top. God, gods would never be servants. The top of the ruler couldn't reach the bottom of the ruler. It just doesn't work that way. In the ancient world, the greatness on one side could never touch the servant's life on the other. They would never touch. Yet the reality of the incarnation and the absolute humility of Christ forced these two sides of the ruler together in Jesus' greatness, true greatness. He chose to be a servant and revealed that true greatness is found in even the most invisible and discarded of society. And by doing so, Jesus was bringing the two ends of the ruler together, which doesn't work in a world with rigid ways of measuring people. They can't touch. They the least can't be the great, the first can't be the last, the servant can't be a leader, I can't be a one and a twelve, it doesn't make sense, and that's the point. With the way we rank ourselves, it doesn't make sense. The two ends of the ruler don't touch. But Jesus did it anyways. Truly great and truly humble, truly God and truly a servant, two extremes of the ancient spectrum, and by being both at once, he created so much tension, so much tension that the very ruler the world uses to measure ourselves broke. God did more than just reverse who was considered worthy and who wasn't. God broke the way the world likes to attach any kind of value to one person over another. Jesus completely wrecked the way we tend to compare and rank and describe ourselves, and he invited his closest disciples to do the same. If you want to be friends with Jesus, then you have to get rid of this way of thinking. By choosing to believe that we're really actually pretty great, that we're created in God's image and we bear the image of God and that we've been saved and sustained by God, that as pretty great people, when we choose to serve someone who the world considers below us, we force the world to address the same question Jesus forced his disciples to answer. That The world has to reevaluate either we're not as great as they thought or the way they determine greatness is wrong. When we choose to insist that the greatness of one end is the same as the one who serves on the other, then we break the ruler that the world often uses to measure us up. And if we find ourselves at the bottom of the social order and the world tells us that we're worthless and we have nothing to offer, when the world discards us or ignores us, but we choose to live as people who are actually truly great, not because of what we've done, but because of who we are becoming, then we force the world once again to reevaluate what it means to be great. So go ahead and grab the ruler you had at the beginning. I want you to imagine this ruler represents the way we tend to measure ourselves and compare ourselves and rank ourselves. While we know that Jesus doesn't measure our, our, our worth based on the world standards, we, we tend to rank ourselves, don't we? We struggle to be the best in our field. We compare ourselves to our idols and our peers. We, we count our failures and measure them against our successes. We do downward comparisons and upward comparisons and sideways comparisons. And we're constantly comparing ourselves to each other in an attempt to see 
how we measure. And we use this ruler on other people too. We use it to judge and look down on people. And for those with lower scores, we look down on, and, and with those with higher scores, we, we are envious of, and we gloat, and, and, and we tell them to try harder if they're failing, and we tell them to calm down if they're succeeding, and it's killing us. Since Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and the way of Jesus that leads to life that is true starts and ends by breaking the rulers we use. And that's what I want to present to you today. You get to decide. What will you do? The invitation today is as a disciple of Jesus, as someone wants to start a journey of redefining how we compare ourselves to other people. Do you keep the ruler? Do you hold on to it? Might want to measure yourself later and see how well you're doing. Or do you get rid of it? You decide. Please stand and pray with me. God, we give you thanks that our worth is not defined by our success. We give you thanks that you are able to work in our lives in ways that we often misunderstand. Lord, we ask that you would draw us closer and closer to you. Lord, we want to be friends with Jesus. Lord, and we want to do it in a way that we don't hold it over people or, or try to figure out how well we're doing compared to others or try to be the best disciple in the whole world and the best Christian who loves people better than anyone else because we want to be great like that. Lord, we just ask that you would create in us a humble heart. And we recognize that you're working in all of us. None of us have arrived. And you've invited us on a journey, a journey of a new way of living, that you're you're establishing this kingdom of God, and where the kingdom of God is near, there is life, there is healing, there is hope. Help us draw near to that kingdom. Help us be near to you. We give you thanks. And all God's people said.